Hey everyone, and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every week. I'm Henry, and back with me today, I've got my regular co-host Jessica. And joining Jessica and I this week, we have Somex's very own Hugh Penson. Jess, Hugh, welcome. How have your weeks been? Good. Good. Yeah, it's been a good week. All the better because Henry has returned from his break. Henry, please tell us what you've been up to. Uh, yeah, I got married. Uh, went off to America and did a, a bit of a road trip around California and Nevada and then did a very classy uh, Elvis-themed drive through wedding to the dismay of everyone that both my wife and I are related to. So it's good. What he's also missed out there is he uh, came very close to some very horrendous bear attacks, so we're lucky to have him back. Uh, Je- Jess has massively overdramatized. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I saw a black bear at very close quarters and it showed little to no interest in me, which was which was good because, frankly, I wouldn't fancy my chances against a badger, let alone a bear. So that was good. Pigeons don't tend to stand a chance against bears. <laughs> we do have the advantage that we can fly, though, um, which bears famously can't. So you never know. Uh, in the future, I will utilise the pigeon skills I've developed or something like that. Anyway, before this devolves into some kind of weird animals of farthing wood kind of debate, uh, let's crack on with our first story. Great. So first story this week is coming to us from Fortune. And that is that health tech startups are booming. And these are the 11 VC investors behind some of the hottest deals. Jess, I think you want to jump in on this one. The main thing that I really wanted to say about this was that I, for once, am incredibly impressed to see the gender diversity and just general diversity, I guess, across the uh, VCs that they've profiled in this article. Um, and it's all the more encouraging to see the fact that, you know, there is this diverse group of people who are leading some of these really big raises that are really kind of landmark investments for the industry. So, you know, we talk a lot about some of the issues, particularly in VC, around lack of diversity and and what that inherently then means in terms of, you know, the consequences for the sector and the success for, for instance, female-led startups and, you know, all that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I was really happy to read this article and it's just really encouraging to see that kind of laid out and see the success as it moves forward, I guess. Yeah, we were talking this morning in our team meeting about the Morgan Stanley report about traditional led, traditional male-led VC funds doing the doing less work towards improving diversity issues. There's about 41% of them are appointing more women. The more racially diverse uh, VC funds are actually employing much more diverse people across their um, across their teams. It's about 63% compared to the 41 in more traditionally male-led VC funds. So yeah, it's a, it's a hugely important thing to see representation in that sector. And, uh, and encouraging, I think. With that in mind, let's move on to story number two. Eighteen European tech bio startups to watch, according to investors. This has come to us from Sifted. Um, big question on my lips: Is biotech now officially tech bio? I think yes. I would like Somex to take some responsibility here. It is absolutely not our responsibility <laughs> um, or not as a consequence of us. But I feel that we've been some influence here after our Google event with Jason and Joanna talking about uh, tech bio, the rise of tech bio and the and how basically technology is becoming a facilitator of the biology in the development of 
new medicines um, and actually the really crucial part that data plays in that as we move forward and I guess enabling accessibility of access and all that sort of stuff. So I'm sure we had our part to play, but I've definitely seen tech bio thrown around a lot more recently and I think it's really exciting. I think it's symbolic of a bit of a shift we're seeing and you know the life sciences sector really embracing technology and seeing it as a foundational cornerstone of the work that they're doing rather than an optional or you know an add-on so that is my take and it's always nice to see our friends Ori Biotech in there our friends at Okabio um, and also you know really impressive range of tech bio biotech companies from across Europe you know not just UK based but really good rep- UK representation, but also uh, from other countries too. So yeah, it's really nice to see what they're doing. And you know, the success in terms of the amounts of money they're raising, it's not, yeah, the amount that they've raised is not an inconsiderable sum. Yeah, it says that in 2021, biotech companies raised 50 billion worldwide, of which 8 billion went to European countries, according to deal room. So I think the only way is up. I love biotech, so I find it inherently interesting. Uh, one thing I'm keen to understand on this is is just whether biotech, tech bio is drawing a line between the companies making the technology and the companies developing the therapeutics. I think the point of tech bio is the fact that actually we're seeing an increasing rise in the number of companies who are either forming collaboratives so that you have the almost the technologists and the biologists working together for a collaborative offering or indeed you're having a unified offering where the technology is in-house. I think ultimately it's always better to have specialists doing the specialist role. You get the best of, of everything there, but um, I don't think it's necessarily one or the other and one overtaking the other. I think it's having the best of both worlds and then having an even better outcome. So should we expect to see a lot more collaborations then? I think so, yeah. I think so. And I think, you know, that is, I guess... Also, companies recognising where they're strongest and, and where they're less strong and actually the strengths of others within the industry to, you know, therefore, as you say, collaborate for a better outcome, ultimately, you know, making products more cheaply, more quickly, greater accessibility and all of that kind of thing. So I I think we are definitely going to see see more of it and definitely in the conversations I'm having, seeing lots of kind of partnerships bubbling under and I think we'll see a few announcements around that kind of thing in the, the not too distant future. Yeah, I agree. I think there's two other important things to note just quickly on that article. One is that it links to an excellent report by the UK's Bio Industry Association about tech bio being sort of stuck in the middle where the bio investors don't get the tech bit and the tech investors don't get the bio bit. Uh, The joy of jet lag means that I got to read some of that last night. Um, The other important thing, which is uh, very important to note, is that the uh, headline image for that article is one of the finest moustaches I've ever seen. So worth clicking on just for that. Okay, so Health Education England CEO discusses digital workforce issues. This has come to us from digitalhealth.net. And one of the key takeaway quotes from it was, if you make systems simple and easy to use, people will use them. Sounds fair enough, right? Hugh, uh, you've got a really strong background in this area. It'd be really interesting to hear your thoughts on uh, Navina Evans, who is the CEO at HEE, uh, and what she said in, uh, in this panel. So I think this is a great story. Uh, it's one of those things where yeah, we, we can acknowledge that the workforce backlog exists. We can talk about it a lot. Um, but, you know, digitization is going to be a, a really key part of that. That said, if you make systems easy to use, 
people will use them is sort of the mantra that you hope that people will be using in and not just the health service, but, you know, widely across. But it's it's one of those things that's easier said than done. But yeah, there's a yeah, there's a three priorities outlined in this article that yeah, to tackle these workforce and backlog problems. And they're looking at senior leadership, a digital expertise workforce, so people who actually know how to use the systems that are there, and then making sure everyone in the NHS is capable and digitally enabled. And, you know, we've got to get systems that work really well. We've got to get systems that work together. And we've got to get people who understand how to use them. That's probably going to require a plan of how to get there. It's great that um, uh, this has sort of been part of every strategy that's come out for different areas of the NHS for the last however many years. I think we still need to see a roadmap of where that goes, though. It's interesting you raised the idea of like uh, easy to use and interoperability. I'd be I completely agree with everything she said in this panel, but I would be really interested to know what is what is easy to use? Like, is a system that is not necessarily the most intuitive, but interoperates perfectly with everything from your EPR to your prescribing services, whatever it is, is that easy to use? Or is easy to use something that has a simple interface where the UX is really well designed and you just look at it and it feels intuitive, but it might not necessarily interoperate that well? Or is it a combination of both of those things? And if so, it's so difficult to do. And this is one of the big challenges in the NHS is bringing intuitive systems to hospitals. You know, there there are things that you can put a lot of work in on UX and design in technology, but if it doesn't work in the clinical setting, then it's it's not easy to use, it's not intuitive, and it's not helpful. Mm. Well, I think there's a few things on this, and I was having a conversation quite recently with Elliot Engers from Infinity Health. And he was talking about this idea of user experience and and simplifying, I guess, interfaces that NHS staff are using. And he made the point that healthcare is one of the few industries where UX takes a back seat. Um, Because I think often we get really focused on what what it is that we're trying to achieve, which is not an inherently bad thing. But I think the UX kind of becomes secondary to the actual goal, whereas actually the the UX, the user experience, and how it is actually going to be used in practice by whether it's clinicians, whether it's HCAs, whether it's administrators, is actually a fundamental part of achieving that outcome. Um, And, you know, it has to be an integral part of product development. And that's not to say that it's not, it's just ignored, but it's just not prioritized in the same way as if, you know, when you think about your internet banking, for instance, or I'm trying to think what apps I use all the time. I don't know, your Apple Watch apps, all of that kind of thing. It's just not as seamless and not prioritised in quite the same way. But I think the other part of this is that I think simplifying systems is ironically a bit of an oversimplification because obviously there are lots of systems that are used by the NHS and people who work in the NHS are used to having to utilize all of those different systems to access like tiny fragments of information and bring together you know a whole view of that but i think part of the simple the simple the simplicity is actually perhaps also the familiarity so choosing a system that or process that nhs staff at whatever point they're at in terms of you know accessing data whatever it might be choosing one of those that they are familiar with and they can use and and having interoperability pushing into that so that actually they're not having to learn a new system because there becomes a burden 
even in the short term with learning a new system, no matter how simple it is. So actually, if you're able to bring it into something that's already in use, reduce the number of systems that are they're having to tap into, then you you speed up the time to actually reaping the rewards and the benefit. I think that's often the argument that's presented with, you know, large scale digital transformation is that actually there's it takes a long time for that to bed in and for it to be used um, and also trusted. You know, that's another reason why using something that NHS staff are familiar with is that they already have inbuilt trust in that system and that interface and that platform. When you bring something new in, people are hesitant to use it, you know, and I think, you know, they trust what they know. Um, We all do. And I think that, that, you know, needs consideration. And, you know, I think, you know, the point about the education piece is, you know, really relevant on the basis that at med schools until now, you know, the, the digital side of things has not really been incorporated. And we've got an entire generation of digitally native people coming through, um, which I think is going to see a shift. But I think on the more experienced end of the scale, um, upskilling that cohort of people to be able to use systems that they trust and are simple, um, you know, might might be a bit more challenging. But I think to Hugh's point, this is not an overnight fix. And I think we need to be clear about what the plan is, what's achievable in the short term and what it's going to take a bit longer for us to uh, achieve. But, you know, and how do we how do we get there without losing interest and all that kind of stuff, which often happens. In, in looking into this article, I started reading through the dissemination of the, the 2002 IT strategy, which was the sort of um, the grand failure that was the National Programme for IT. And there's a really, really interesting case history of that that talks about what came before that. And we've been trying to do exactly the same things, or NHS strategy has been trying to do the same thing since 1992, which was the first IMT strategy across the whole NHS, right? And that identified five main principles for the use of information in health. One, information should be person-based, still trying to do that. Two, IT systems should be integrated, working on it. Three, information should be derived from existing operational systems, patchy, but getting there. Four, information should be secure and confidential. We've had some breaches, but it's one of the more secure systems. And five, information should be shared across the NHS, which we're still talking. I was four in 1992. We're still talking about it now. But something somewhere in this is fundamentally unworkable. And until that issue is addressed, I I can't see this being fixed. Yeah, I kind of think it needs someone to kind of just take the reins and do it. But that's the problem with public sector organisations, I guess. And, you know, the their reliance on governments, government departments and that kind of thing. And I think it's going to be a very challenging time for us to see a huge amount of movement on that based on where we are with, you know, big issues like the economy and that kind of thing. Uh, I imagine that I still think it's going to be a priority, but I just, I think other things might supersede it um, because I think attention is going to be focused on those rather than this. And, you know, you don't have people in, these are long-term plans, as you said, you know, you would have been four back in 1992. It's now 20 years later and not much has changed. And, you know, not that it necessarily needs someone to be in, in role for 20 years, but it needs continuity of team and of leadership. And we, we aren't set up for that, I don't think. Well, join us in 30 years in 2052 for Health Tech Pigeon 4000, when hopefully we'll have managed to fix this great big problem.
I mean, there's something very disheartening about this problem, though, uh, the backing is that we're looking at, you know, how do we talk, how do we get data through the system? How do we get patient shared care records um, from one uh, end of the system to another? There are still trusts in this country that don't have an electronic patient record that, you know, we, that data is being taken down in, in paper form. Um, so until we sort of address the really, what should be sort of basic issues, we're not going to see a lot of progress across the system. It was one of the most disheartening things that I read last year when Sajid Javid was uh, still Secretary of State for Health uh, was when he said that he wants 90% of trusts to have an EPR in place by December 2023. I've worked selling kind of add-on bits to EPRs in the past and it's amazing to me that of the 230 of trusts that we're not even we're not even planning on being at 90% by next Christmas. Um that's that's astonishing because that the whole point of that 1992 IT strategy was to also test out EPRs like that was 30 years ago. <sighs> I mean yeah I mean, we say this basically on a weekly basis but let's not forget there are still fax machines. I think like where is the goal to get rid of those? Didn't wasn't that uh, wasn't that one of um, Matt Hancock's uh, ooh, Matt Hancock reference? We don't get those ooh. much anymore. Uh, that was one of Matt Blast Hancock's big things, past. wasn't it? Was it faxes or I don't know? Welcome back, Axe Matthew. Axe the facts. Axe the facts. That was it. And there was yeah. there was not a catchy slogan for um, for pages, but he was also anti pages. Axe the facts with Matt. Um, Oh, it's great. It's so close to rhyming. <laughs> and I'm sure that he would appreciate it. We can send that to him and maybe he can upload it to the Matt Hancock app, which is yeah. still the least used app on my phone. Um, right. This has devolved into just talking about Matt Hancock. So I feel it would be prescient for us to move on. Um, do, as I said, do join us in 30 years when hopefully this will have been fixed. Story number four. Health insurtech startup Peachy raises £1.5 million. Um, I wrote a litany of fruit-based jokes for this, but I think this is a very, very important story because this is this is going to be increasingly important in health tech and increasingly important in healthcare in general in the future. This has come to us from UK Tech News. Hugh, talk to us about Peachy and their excellent raise. So this would be a hard story not to be excited about. Insurance, private medical insurance in particular, has been what could we say, probably almost as long to upgrade. Well, I mean, frankly, it's taken longer to upgrade than, you know, interoperable systems in the NHS for a bit of a callback there. What PG are doing is upgrading insurance, essentially. They're making, they're looking at the everything from the infrastructure, the back end to the front end to the user experience and making it digital, making it user-friendly, and they're making it simple to use, which if anyone here or any listeners have private medical insurance, they will know it's not simple to use as it is. So yeah, this is this is really promising. Uh, really excited to follow them as they do it uh, and really excited to be a customer for full disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really, uh, really appealing list of, um, of investors there as well. That's a, a great group that they've got together. So that's also a very positive thing. I was going to say, what I really like about PT is that it it's like, it's an, it's a health insurance option for millennials. And I, I think traditionally health insurance is has been something that you, you either get when you're as a benefit as part of a big corporate or you have it without wanting to offend anyone, but when you get older, um, because you perhaps are financially more able to or you recognise the benefits of it. And I think for that reason... Well, that is one of the reasons why we haven't seen products that are 
you know, appeal to a younger generation of person, you know, their lifestyle, you know, something that's affordable, is easy to access, is like works in the same way that, you know, any of the other services that, you know, I interact with through an app on my phone. Um, and I really like that. And by contrast, I, uh, I'm also, by the way, a peachy customer, but I, um, recently had a couple of emails through from other insurers through into my inbox, clearly trying to do this kind of more millennial, like cool, approachable, branding uh, I, and I say branding because I don't think anything behind the scenes has, has really changed but uh yeah it really just wasn't hitting the mark um and I will name no names but it was just a poor attempt at you know changing a, a, a logo and emphasizing chill um and but you know peachy is much more than a brand and I think that you know being able to just not know that I have have the confidence that to submit a claim and know that I'm not going to have weeks, months long battle, knowing whether or not I'm going to get reimbursed for treatment I've had or a consultation I've had and just be able to book it from my phone in the same way that I have um, a telehealth GP. So I can just book my GP appointments there. And I like the fact that all the services I use work in the same way. And I don't think that health insurance should be any different. Absolutely. And I think one thing that really stands out from this story is that it's, it's, it's not just us, you know, looking at the product and thinking this is this is great. Um, if you look at the investors, these are all people who've got extensive experience in, in in the insurance industry. So the industry is really getting behind it as well. That's, and I think that's really exciting when sort of people who've been in in this and been in the traditional model are looking forward at the new model and thinking, yeah, this this is the one. Let's move on to our final story this week. And that is coming to us also from digitalhealth.net. Interoperable digital care can only be achieved with an open technology approach. Similar to what we discussed with the Health Education England CEO's comments earlier on this week. Right, Jess, talk to us about interoperable digital care. So interoperability is one of our favourite buzzwords. And it is important. It really is important. I think... This article talks about why open technology is going to be a key lever of that. And I think, you know, open standards, open technology is important um, and will get us some of the way. I think, you know, ultimately the, the purpose of having open technology means that, as everyone knows, the NHS has lots of silo systems that don't speak to each other. And I think, again, you know, because of procurement processes and that kind of thing, you often end up with several years of one innovator provider off, you know, giving a service, um, integrating a system. Um, but then when that contract ends or it's decided that it's not quite fit for purpose or whatever, it's then very difficult. You then have to basically plug that gap rather than pick up where they left off. And I think the purpose of having then open technology means that actually you get more continuity um, and genuinely interoperability where it's not you're not reliant on one system or technology or one provider um and i think that can that means you never have a hopefully you don't have a single point of failure um and it enables i think it's it's good for innovators because it means that you know in in theory any innovator should be able to plug their solution into an open standards network 
and I think from a from a data point of view, and and you know being able to merge health and care data, clearly it's a really important priority. And I know obviously we're working towards the integration of of health and social care. And to be honest, it still feels like quite a long way off. But you know, I I can see how open standards could support that. And I think what we're talking about here is the flow of data and making sure you know data doesn't stay siloed in the way that it is right now um and clearly that is going to be critical when we're merging two huge not just workforces but systems and functions of that people utilize all the way through their life and i had a super interesting conversation with robert miller the other day who is ceo from wellbeing software part of the system group and he has a really interesting view on interoperability and integrated care and what he was saying was that actually when we think about data and integrating services where we need to be really focused is and to your point earlier Henry it's very much about you know data being centered around a person but more than that data needs to be able to arrive at the point of care or wherever a patient or person shows up in a care system whether or not that's social care whether or not that's health care whether or not that's primary care, secondary care, tertiary care, community care, whatever it might be, that data needs to be immediately available at that moment in time for a healthcare professional, but also for the patient. And I think that was a really, for me, interesting point of view, because so often you hear about integration of systems or integration of services. But actually, if you think about it from that data point of view, it, it that it makes so much more sense. Um, and I, yeah, I hadn't really consider that I'd kind of saw it more as kind of jigsaw pieces of the puzzle. And I think, you know, what he was saying was that actually, especially when we think about short term solutions versus long term solutions and, you know, the workforce crisis and, you know, the NHS being so overburdened that actually innovators need to come to where the NHS is at now rather than, you know, trying to enforce, you know, a larger scale uh, digital transformation and actually look at where what you can do now with the systems that they have and open standards would obviously really help that but also again collaborating with other solutions to provide a more complete solution rather than solving part of a problem um and i think you know having open standards would make that far easier and make it much quicker to see the benefits of digital technologies but also the benefits with patients the benefits on you know, admin burden and and all of those kinds of things that we talk about every single day. And I think, you know, it's an exciting prospect for innovators because, you know, they get to see how these systems are working and then create a solution that addresses and functions alongside those without disrupting it or, you know, requiring something entirely new. Excellent. Okay. Well, with that, then we will wrap up this week's pigeon. Thanks a lot, everyone. That was us analysing the health tech news. So you don't have to join us next week and check out all the articles we've talked about and some of the best jobs and pods in health tech at healthtechpigeon.com. 